Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in this crazy, amazing world of ours. Today is Friday, the 30th of January, 2015. First month of 2015, nearly done and dusted. I hope um, you've kicked off the year to a uh, big bang. We certainly have, busy with all sorts of things that uh, manage Flitter. Uh, my name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you work faster and smarter with Twitter. If you haven't tried it, give it a go. If you're busy um, using Manage Flitter as you listen to us, because we put up the link on the Manage Flitter page, um, a special hello and good day, as we say to you. Um, so welcome and thank you for listening. It is episode 54. We have a fantastic show lined up for you. We will be talking about Uber. Uber is one of those startups that pops up every now and then, more uh, more frequently than not lately. And we'll be talking to James West, who is the CEO of Midas Letter Financial Group. Um, and he wrote an article about Uber and why it is a bad investment. The article was essentially aimed at some institutional investors. I spoke to him a little while ago, and um, we'll um, get to that interview. And a uh, very special co-host today, Charles Mathieu, one of our um, developers involved in, in special projects. I think I'm going to give all, I think all the developers just should have the title special projects because you guys just get involved in so much. Absolutely. There's no one thing that you should be involved in. It's good to have your finger in all of the pies, so to speak. I think we all, we all special projects. Um, <laughs> Especially the nights that I'm in, uh, left emptying out the garbage bins in the office. That's definitely a special project. (laughs) Isn't that part of your uh, CEO title? Hey, man. And and miscellaneous other tasks. Exactly. And I've got no one to complain to that it's not in my job description. Uh, You can winch to us. We always Um, listen. Nah, it's look, you know, we, we want big happy family. And um, Charles Mathieu is coming to us live from Cape Town, South Africa. And just as an aside, we are um, you know, looking at growing the team and we are looking for a full stack developer. Um, and we are based in Sydney, Australia, but we're open to talking to you wherever you are in the world if you're an exceptional individual. And uh, um, yeah, there is a job spec on uh, managedfitter.com forward slash careers. If it's something that potentially interests you, contact us and, hey, you can even become a co-host. Uh, we like to, to, to share the love around with the co-host. Shal, how's Cape Town today? Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day today. No wind, just lots of sun. So I think it's going to be stinking hot here again today. We've had a, a few days of lots of heat. Um, and most probably by the weekend, you know, it's going to be cloudy and rainy again. So <laughs> let's hope the, the good weather lasts for the weekend as well. I thought Cape Town, uh, it, it's uh, wet in winter, not summer. Uh, it is wet in winter, but uh, we do get the odd showers here and there. Okay, interesting, because I just got images of uh, Cape Town in December on the odd family holiday with these insanely perfect days. The, just just not a drop of wind, blue skies from morning to night. Yeah, we, we're kind of heading into the windy season now, so it's going to you know <clears throat> be blowing quite strong for the next few months, and then we head into winter from there. And of course, in Cape Town, a lot of kite surfing and windsurfing and all those wind-based sports activities are, are pretty popular, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, a mate of mine stays just off Misty Cliffs, which is one of the only places you can do your kite surfing, depending on where the wind's blowing from. So, you know, it's, it's a very, very uh, active community of wind enthusiasts. Nice one. Maybe uh, there's, there's a couple of guys that, that uh, kite surf down at Bondi when the conditions are right. Wow, it looks like a lot of fun, but you really, you really have to know what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of serious stuff. 
Yeah, there's a fair amount of skill involved. Um, I think your knees get to take a pounding, so it's a no-no for me, unfortunately. But it looks like really awesome. Uh, that same friend of mine that stays in Misty Cliffs also does kite surfing. He loves it as well. So yeah, you know, it's recommended. Go give it a go. It's a bit expensive, I think, to take up to take off. So if you can get second-hand gear to start off with, uh, it's possibly the way to go. But yeah, it's definitely something everybody should give a go. Yeah, no. Whenever I watch them, I'm like, wow. But um, anyway, if we Let's get into the serious stuff. We're going to be talking in the news. We always start off the podcast with a bit of a catch-up roundup of the news. And uh, it's earnings season um, in, the, in, uh, in the listed company world. And uh, we're going to talk about Facebook and Apple because uh, even though we talk a lot about Facebook and Apple, both of them have come up with results that are very, very much worth talking about. Let's first talk about Facebook. Um, Facebook came out with its quarterly results on Wednesday. Um, and it reported that its revenue, and uh, also known in Australia we call a turnover, increased 49% in the fourth quarter. Now, um, annualized, that's uh, what, that times that by four, that's 200% turnover increase in a year for, for a company earning um, for a company earning nearly four billion a quarter, i.e., um, you know, 16 billion a year, and it's experiencing that revenue growth, that turnover growth, I mean, Charles, that, that is, that's just a massive it's number. That's absolutely insane. It's, it's really crazy. I mean, I would love to have invested in a business that showed 49% increase in the last quarter. I mean, that's just f- fabulous growth. However, you know, there's always a, a, dark, a dark lining to every silver cloud. <laughs> and I see that they're also complaining, of, well, they're not complaining, they've also uh, listed that their uh, expenditures is up quite a lot as well. Yeah, they said they're going to be, you know, continue to invest, um, particularly in a lot of their acquisitions, Oculus, uh, Rift, um, WhatsApp, they're going to um, Instagram. They've made some fantastic acquisitions over the last few years. Uh, they've paid for them, um, you know, but um, they're, they're proving to, to be good decisions. Of course, says, um, it, you know, watch driving a lot of that revenue increases mobile. Nearly 70% of its revenue now comes from mobile, which... Yes. Yeah, mobile seems to be the, the largest growing segment or the largest growing audience by far. But it's also most probably because that's really what they're targeting at the moment. Um, video seems to be another growing concern for them, which is really, really good. Uh, it means that you know, Facebook doesn't have all of their apples in one basket, which is great. And then there's the, uh, you know, is uh, Facebook's video going to be a YouTube video killer uh, question? It's also, I think, on everybody's lips. Um, and from, from what I gather from looking at the numbers and stuff, it's really hard to say at the moment. I think time would tell to see which one of those two, you know, is going to dominate the space. But um, it's going to be interesting seeing the video giants battle it out, that's for sure. I mean, what's interesting is another interesting metric is the monthly active users increased 3.2% over the previous quarter. Now, remember, Facebook, um, Facebook already has, um, you know, um, you know, over a billion users, and, and now it's got 1.39 billion monthly active users, managed to increase it from that high, high base, 3.2% a quarter. I mean, you know, just on every single metric, it's just, it's just nailing it. And uh, humbly, Mark Zuckerberg is quoted as saying, we're very pleased with the growth of our business. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't be at those numbers, right? What would be interesting to know about that 3.2% is how much of that is um, from mobile clients and what if, of that is just the traditional web, you know, internet-based clients. Yeah. Uh, because in, in Africa, traditionally you'll find there's more people that have a mobile device 
connected to the internet than what they are people that have computers connected sure. to the internet. So, so that would be very, very interesting to see, you know, what's, what makes up that 3.2%. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think, yeah, mobile's definitely, definitely driving it. Video's definitely driving it. Um, and um, it's, their, their profits, you know, all their numbers were higher than, than the analysts predicted. Interestingly, their share price dropped a little bit after the results were announced. So obviously, these was already factored into the price um, somewhere I along think, the line. Um, I think one of the articles I read alluded to the fact that because uh, Mark, uh, you know, commented that they were looking at more losses based on R&D that they're going to be doing into the other branches. I think that may have, you know, put a bit of fear in some people and that might be, you know, attributing, that may attribute to the, the drop in share price. But I, I think that'll just bounce back, you know, how it goes with these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, it says Facebook's share price was down about 2% in after hours trading after the results were announced. Um, I'm still very bullish on Facebook. Um, disclaimer, I own a few shares just in case you think I'm trying to increase the, the demand good, for the good, Facebook shares. Good for you then. Yeah, look, I mean, when everyone was going, oh, don't invest in them, don't invest in them. I mean, it's a small amount, and uh, but it's fun to, it's always fun to watch you know, watch it grow up. They've proven that, you know, if your shares go up, you feel very smart, you know, and you made a smart decision. And uh, But, uh, you know, it's always always very difficult to predict, but they... They're doing a lot right, and, and more than ever, people are just, you know, even anecdotally in your life, you just look around and people are seriously addicted to Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, and, that, and, and there's no one specific age group that we're talking about here. I mean, if it's completely across the board, you know, from, uh, from the youngsters to the older fogies like us. Everybody seems to be really much engaged in Facebook, so that's a you know it's a phenomenal a phenomenal thing. They're doing something right, that's for sure. Well, their, what, their, their penetration is fantastic. Well, they've you know they've focused, I think, on the algorithm of the timeline. They they've smart you know the, the more people they have looking at the timeline, and the longer they're looking at that timeline, the more ads that they can present to them, and the, and that's what they've you know really done. And that's where Twitter's fallen a bit behind in that, and. Um, you know, I think I think Twitter um, over time, you know, they're probably experimenting like mad to see how they can just get those engagement numbers up and they can get that that growth up. You know, I think we still got got the best to see out of Twitter. Um, again, I own a, a few little Twitter shares. D- disclaimer, but but I I would actually think that it's an, it's not a bad investment if you're a little bit of a punter just to buy some and hold on to them because I think the best days of Twitter are yet to yet to come. Um, and, um, you know, particularly since they, I'm sure they're watching all of this and, uh, you, you know, with, with hungry eyes and Twitter still owns the celebrity space, the famous people space, the live event space, um, the political, a lot of it still, you, you know, is happening on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And also now really very much doing a massive push into video as well. So, you know, the whole video space is also... Uh, currently, you know, under threat from from Facebook, and um, I saw that uh, Twitter's doing a little polite beg for people that are on, um, using Instagram, because of course Instagram's owned by Facebook, and and a couple of years back, um, Twitter revoked the, the the nice inline photo that if you post it on Instagram and it's integrated with Twitter, it used to come in a nice inline photo, and due to political issues, they pulled that, so now you just get a link. 
And now I believe um, for some people, if you post an Instagram photo, you get a little pop-up screen that says, you know, did you know you can upload your photos directly through Twitter and you can filter them, etc. So they're trying to push people. They're trying to push people natively. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, everyone's everyone's looking after their their yeah, own interests. All, all, all the big guys played that game. Same thing with the the Facebook video. You know, it's all about uh, keeping you engaged on their platform. Um, you know, without reaching out into any external uh, providers and stuff like that, because there's no money for them in that. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, videos videos the thing to watch this year, and um, let's let's see what they do with their acquisitions. Uh, Instagram and WhatsApp they haven't really monetized properly, so they can get a whole another chunk of revenue out of that. Oculus Rift would be interesting to see what they what they do with that. Um, yeah, so it's quite interesting to see what Mark Zuckerberg's comment is on all those side projects of theirs. He doesn't seem to be in a massive rush to try and push them into making money. He seems to be taking it very slowly, step by step, and just making sure that they grow the technologies in the correct way before they start looking at pushing monetization very hard. Being so smart about the acquisitions, they've essentially just let them be as if they were just still independent companies, iterate, experiment, do what they need to do, and just eventually they'll find the right way to monetize. Um, you know, the whole Facebook story, Charles, I mean, if someone's listening and they are, you know, if, if they are a tech startup a wannabe or, or newbie, the, the, whole face, the, the whole Facebook story is, is, a, is really a wonderful case study on how to build a startup. You know, start small, start cheap, you know, bootstrap as long as you can, um, get smart investors, don't just get any investor, you know, I mean, I mean, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg got people like Peter Thiel to write the first check, you know, then get adult supervision as soon as possible, like Sheryl Sandberg, build a smart board and, you know, it's a really, it's a really wonderful, um, um, you know, success story, success story and, and I'm pretty sure the, the, the one good thing that Mark did that has served him very well is have the right people around him to advise him. Everyone from Mark Andreessen, who's a, who's a genius in our industry, to Peter Thiel, to Sheryl Sandberg, to, to Ron Conway, to all, all these people that you know, really have, I'm sure, have, have, have fed him along the way. One thing I see in Sydney um, is that people people try to go it alone a little bit too much? You know, it's it's one person is never going to going to be optimized as much as as having you know experienced grey hair that have been there, done that, and and can get input give you inputs. The tricky thing is note which advice to ignore and which advice to take on, and that's where the the art of uh, you, you know building a business comes in. Absolutely. You need to know, you need, you need to engage mentors, you know, and if you can get the, the, the top guys for free, that's the best way to go. If you have to pay a little price by giving them a, a chunk of your business, that's most probably not a bad second prize. But yeah, always make sure you have that business mentor and never, never make the mistake of believing that you know everything, you know, really rely on other people's experience to uh, work as a platform for you to springboard what you're doing. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, being in being in some of the tech startup hubs really helps because you've got access to these people. And it's, it's been said many times, but literally in the Bay Area and to a lesser degree, New York and places like Austin. I mean, in the Bay Area, they're just, they're just everywhere. You know, you, you throw your hat in the air and it's, it's, it's someone that sold a business for $15 million that wants to help you. And it really is that dense. And, you know, life's complicated. We can't always just be in, in and, and optimize for that. But if you do have the opportunity of, of living there, as much as I love Australia and I love Sydney, it's, it's definitely 
that particular advantage, it definitely um, is there. But anyway, um, enough ed- editorializing. Let's let's talk about Apple. Some other some other amazing results. We'll talk about Apple Watch first before the results. Um, 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 Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, has confirmed that Apple Watch to arrive in April. So that's pretty soon, um, and it's gonna it's gonna do all sorts of um, you know, smart things. It's going to have, you know, be able to sort of uh, tap you automatically when you get notifications. Apple Pay is going to be integrated. It's going to have a heart rate monitor. Um, it's, you're going to get, um, you know, all your notifications. You, um, you know, it's, it's been announced. There aren't really any new features that's been announced. The battery life, the battery life is still going to be a challenge. Um, rumored to have 19 hours of mixed use or 2 to 0.5 hours of active use. It's going to retail for about 349 at the starting um, rate, so it's going to probably go up quite a lot. So um, Apple Watch, I'm very interested to see what they do. Will, will they be creating a whole new category, or is it going to be something like Google Glass that just sort of fizzles and it's before its time or just not quite, not going to find its market? I think from my perspective, it's definitely something I'm going to not get into immediately, but definitely keep an eye, an eye on. Uh, you don't want to buy these devices in the first generation any case because there's a lot of teething that has to be sorted out. Um, so I don't know. My, my honest opinion is don't buy one just yet. Maybe wait 6 to 12 months and then see where things stand out. The pricing may have changed you know, in that period as well. The initial devices are normally quite expensive from Apple. Um, and then they you know, become a bit more sane as time passes by. But it's a very interesting, you know, technological device. It's going to be great to see, you know, what what apps people build for this thing, and to see if it actually does, you know, fill some kind of niche or starts um, chewing into the market share of other other things. So that'd be, you know, in- interesting thing to watch. It's it's a bit expensive though for a, a watch though. So I don't know. We'll we'll have to see how things settle and how these compete with with the phones and the tablets and whatnot, especially the larger phones now, the phablets, so to speak. Yeah, and I've been using a Jawbone as you have, and I've also I've also got a Pebble Watch, and I bought it to experiment with it, and it's it's pretty cool, but it hasn't been as compelling for me to keep it charged and wear it. It's just it hasn't really added that much value. I think I got it for about one hundred and seventy dollars, or. Or, or something like that. I bought it at a vending machine at, at an airport in the States, out of all places, one of those best buy vending machines, just on a whim, um, which, which was fun to buy something like that from a vending machine. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah I, I'm, I'm also going to follow it with great interest to see if it's going to create a, a new category. I think some of these wearable companies must be very, very fearful that it's just going to annihilate them. Um, I think it might very well, you know, depending on how robust the device is and whatnot. Um, maybe a problem. Also, the price point. I mean, the, the the price point for the Apple Watch versus something like the Jawbone is, you know, it's a massive difference there. <clears throat> um, and if Apple successfully manages to launch this, it'll be a fantastic platform for people to rather focus on app development versus the hardware. So, in that way, I think it does make a lot of the wearable guys extremely nervous. Yeah, and, and Tim Cook did say that um, he's been very impressed with how many apps are being made for it and, um, you know, there's that, that ecosystem. And that's, that's sort of what was the initial success of the iPhone was all the apps and maybe that's where some of the other smartwatches and wearables have, have you know, not been as successful. And, um, you know, if someone comes up with some, some apps that add a lot of value in the day-to-day 
you know, tie in, tie in your heart rate monitor with a, you know, some other app and your diary and who, who and your fitness tracker. Who, who knows? Well, let's let's see what um, let's see what they come out with. Let's quickly talk about Apple results, which they they also announced. Also, massive, massive results. Apple reported a 30% jump in revenues, so a 30% jump in turnover to 74.6 billion, with profit, or what Americans call a net income increase of 38% to 18 billion. Primarily, here's the interesting part: due to high demand of the larger sized iPhones, sales of the iPad declined, but the sales of the iPhone rose 46 to 74.5 million users which beats analyst expectations of 64.9 million now the interesting metric is that um, this profit is apparently um, the biggest quarterly profit in corporate history um, apparent, yeah. apparent, apparently the other big corporates uh, the other records are, are oil companies and there's only in the top 10 there's only oil companies and Apple in the biggest profits. So that's quite but remarkable. It, it shows you there's an insatiable need for technology at the consumer level. It's absolutely phenomenal. And, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, say you know, or not a lot, but, you know, person says, you, you guys, you know, focus on a lot of the numbers and, you know, life's more about dollars and cents. Absolutely. I mean, these are just proxies for... The value that's created, and that, and that's where it's interesting. And, and your point is, is spot on. You know that that that's the beautiful thing about business is it's 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 a value creation. You know, and it's and it's it's sort of infinite, and it's and it's a win-win game. It's not taking. It's not a zero-sum game. You know, the value that Apple yeah. creates um, is all sorts of along the supply chain and its staff and and and. And the app developers, and it's it's really it's quite remarkable. And um, you know, to succeed at the hardware game is difficult. It is really really hard. I mean, you know, um, you, you used to work for you know a company IBM that um, started out in hardware and nearly fell over because eventually they couldn't make money out of hardware, and then they transformed themselves into a software company or services Absolutely. company. Yeah, yeah. Most of them, they, they do very, very little hardware stuff nowadays, IBM, yeah. No, that's true. Well, Apple's success is not just on the hardware side, but it's in the fact that it's actually managed to package technology, let's call it that, uh, which includes hardware and software as a single thing so people can, you know, so that hardware is, or software is not really an issue. They're like the masters at selling and pushing a platform that you can use to extend, et cetera, et cetera, and build apps on top of. So they're extremely good at that. And, you know, these earnings just absolutely, you know, um, bring that point home. Yeah, and, I mean, just to give you a picture of, of you know, um, how much money um, this is, um, you know, the $16 billion of, of, uh, of profit, the, the, the combined GDP of Africa's 10 poorest countries is less than 16 billion dollars you know so so apple's profit of 18 billion dollars you know and and these are countries gdp um, yeah. all added up so it's it's it, it can get a good bit lost when we're talking billions and people you know if someone's listening to the podcast and say oh, you know facebook's billions and apple's billions but it's these are really um remarkably significant numbers because you're starting to talk about you know, GDPs of countries. Absolutely. <laughs> if we rephrase this maybe so that everybody can understand what 18 billion US dollars can buy you, in Australian sense, that gives you 20,600 houses in Sydney. 
Yes, and if anyone who lives in Sydney knows how much, I mean, a one-bedroom apartment in the eastern suburbs, you know, is starting to push a million bucks. So um, it's, it's a significant amount of money. I still, you know, interestingly, in, in my self-interested disclaimer, again, I don't own Apple shares. Um, you know, Charles, I'm, I'm, I know, you know. Shouldn't that, you? That, well, I know they make money from iTunes and, and you know, the, the, the bundled bits and pieces, but that hardware component, I guess I'm projecting my own, um, you know, apprehension with that hardware, you know, that hardware supply chain is tough. And um, I, I just, I guess I don't understand it enough. I like to invest in, in, in these shares that I feel I've got quite a, uh, you know, a, a good understanding of the business models, etc. And the hardware side of things, I mean, I don't know how they plan to roll out all these, you know, millions of units and how far in advance and how, how many they waste and get. Right? I have no idea how they pull this off, but they're pulling it off. I don't understand that side of things enough. And uh, the logistical side of this must be absolutely phenomenal. And, and they, must, they, they seem like they've got it down pat because, you know, they don't seem to be running into short supply problems much anymore. They, they seem to have, you know, be completely on, on, on the go and have all the, the issues sussed out. But, yeah, we, we'll see if they deliver on the timeline that they're saying with a new watch. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's hard to track down what Apple's back-end hardware stuff is as well because they don't really disclose much of that information. And, and, you know, getting, getting the supply right must, must be really tough because you, you don't want to run short because that can really kill momentum and marketing momentum. And you may want, may want to run a little bit short, but you don't want to be out of stock for six months. But at the same yeah, time, absolutely. you know, if you overproduce and, and you, you flood the market and, and, and you, you, you know, overinvest as well, that's also not the answer. So um, I, I think there's some very smart people at Apple managing that process because they, they seem to be doing their jobs really well at the you, moment. You, you know what's interesting about Apple, Charles, is that when you go to um, the Bay Area, and I've spent a bit of time in the Bay Area, you meet a lot of people from Google, Facebook, Twitter, all sorts of other companies. You never bump into anyone who works at Apple. And I don't know if it's because they sort of the culture is you play down the fact that you work at Apple so people don't annoy you and the secrets don't sort of leak out, even just little bits and pieces. But you, you never really, you know, meet, meet anyone that works at Apple. And they, I mean, they, they, Apple must have a huge staff at, Cup, uh, I think it's Absolutely. Cupertino. Yeah. yeah, Cupertino, yes. I'm, I'm surprised you don't run into any of them. I'm quite surprised, actually. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, someone was telling me, uh, um, I can't remember exactly who, but that, that part of, you know, th their contract is that they, it's pretty tight what they, what they can say to the outside world. So, um, um, yeah, if you're listening and you, and you do work at Apple, um, drop us a line and we'd love to find out why or if it's just we're getting conspiratorial about it all. <laughs> um, they're building a big new um, spaceship-type HQ at, uh, at Apple that seems to be progressing well with some interesting photos coming out. Okay. And, you know, they're sitting on about $60 billion or $70 billion of cash. So, oh, uh, yeah. They're, they're definitely not a business that's in trouble, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Just, just their cash alone would be, be interesting. Uh, another company really interesting to to um to watch i don't know how their their share price has been going uh, since all these announcements i'll quickly look up um apple share price do you know what's what's happened to their share price since these no, announcements no i haven't been monitoring it 
Um, you don't have any Apple shares? Nah. Um, yeah, it's at, it's at $115. I'll have a look at the year price here. Yeah, it's, it started the year, um, started 12 months ago, January the 31st, 2014 at about $70. And then it's now $115. So uh, a nice increase there in a year if you've uh, been holding on to Apple shares. Absolutely. Anyway, you're listening to episode 54 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything technology-related, social media, um, and, uh, you know, tech, uh, mobile, search, you name it. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to talk about Uber. No doubt, most of you, wherever you are in the world, if you're in the U.S., U.K., even South Africa. Charles, when did Uber come into South Africa? Do you know approximately? Um, I think about two years ago. Okay, so a little while. So even in South Africa. It's really, really recent, but it's, the uptake here has been phenomenal. So, yeah, let's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that after the break. Um, and I've got an interview with um, the author of a fantastic article. And James West um, wrote an article about why people shouldn't invest in, in Uber. So let's take a short break and we will be back with you shortly. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. You are listening to Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Thank you for joining us now. A startup that we talk regularly about is Uber. Uh, we talk a lot about Twitter. We talk a lot about Facebook. We talk a lot about social. We talk a lot about Google. But Uber is definitely one of those startups that for a variety of reasons has captured the imagination of people around the world. And I stumbled upon an article actually sent by Chelsea, the sometime uh, co-host of the show. She sent me an article about a, uh, um, t entitled, uh, with the title, Why Uber is a Doomed Investment. And um, it was published on Midas Letter. And I tracked down um, the CEO of Midas Letter, who's uh, at the end of my Skype line, James West, the CEO of Midas Letter Financial Group Limited. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Kevin. Um, James, first, where, where are you? You uh, on the West Coast? You in the Bay Area? or? Uh, we have offices in Zurich, New York, Toronto, Vancouver. Right. And you yourself at the moment are talking to us from... At the moment, I'm uh, on a small island in the Pacific, uh, on the west coast of Canada. <laughs> I'm having a, an extended Christmas. That sounds very exotic, or probably a little bit cold for uh, us Australians, at least. Uh huh. Actually, relative to the rest of North America, it's a relatively warm place to be right now. Oh, excellent, um, James. Let's let's get straight into it. I was interested to read your article, "Why Uber is a Doomed Investment." I mean, Uber's the darling of the the, the startup industry. I'll just paint a, a couple of quick statistics. I mean, that this late, Uber's raised over $2.5 billion in total. That is billion with a B. Its, it's valuation 
it's 40 billion on its last round of funding. To put that into perspective, Twitter is a listed company and, uh, you know, has, has been a part of uh, things like the Arab Spring, etc., is, is only valued at 25 billion. So I was interested to see your article is, is looking at some of these issues and, and trying to work out what exactly is going on with, with this animal called Uber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, essentially, um, you know, if you listen to the, the investment case for Uber, uh, the argument is that Uber is going to disrupt an entrenched sort of taxi licensing system that uh, sort of cultivates a culture of, of, uh, of, of monopolies in various urban centers where, you know, tends to be one or two taxi companies dominate. And the typical complaint is you can never get a taxi when you need one. Uh, and so Uber has come along and essentially transformed the casual uh, unemployed driver into a potential Uber driver. Um, however, they are doing that by uh, flaunting laws. You know, the, the medallion licensing process of the traditional taxicab system uh, and ensures that, for one thing, drivers have a rudimentary knowledge of the city in which they're providing the service. And arguably, that isn't always the case with the conventional taxi system. They are definitely insured sufficiently so that if you're involved, if you're in a conventional taxi that's involved in an accident and you suffer an injury, you are going to be insured uh, to some degree uh, above and beyond just for the car and the driver, whereas that is generally not the case with Uber. Um, In other aspects, the car has a basic level of fitness that makes it a safe vehicle, which it has to undergo, uh, depending on which jurisdiction, either rigorous inspection or or rudimentary inspection at least at regular intervals in virtually every municipality in the world from New Delhi to Los Angeles. So Uber, by coming in and just saying, you know, we're going to hire anybody who can download the app to their smartphone can be a driver and anybody who can download the app to their smartphone can be a passenger. And we are not going to observe these, this regulatory regime. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the argument that says that Uber is disruptive, but in, really, in fairness to Uber, James, though, do, do, know, do they not have quite a strict pre-qualification process for drivers in terms of uh, criminal checks and um, 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 driving record, etc.? I mean, they, it, it's not as simple as just hitting hitting and uh, apply, and you're you're on board as a driver, as far as I understand. Well, uh, there's plenty of evidence in in major newspapers to suggest that, you know, Uber actually outsources its uh, background checks in large part to third parties. And now they do different things in different areas. They tend to have, at least from what I've been able to observe, they tend to have a a more uh, rigorous approach in major American centers. Um, However, as soon as you step outside of major American centers, uh, especially in emerging economies, uh, the rigor with which they, you know, they check their drivers is, you know, it's outsourced to third parties, to third-party contractors, and Uber itself does not really have a infrastructure in place to evaluate the credentials of those third parties. Right. So, I mean, if you look at what's been produced in the media, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and sort of passenger empirical evidence to suggest that you know a lot of these people are not 
qualified drivers, and certainly the proliferation of criminal cases involving Uber driver assaults on their passengers would seem to support that. I did chat to someone in Sydney who was applying for to be an Uber driver part-time, and he did say that um, his driving record is being checked as well as his criminal record being checked. But um, maybe, as you say, it's, maybe it's quite jurisdiction-specific, and um, it, it really does depend on the geography. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'd be interested to know who's doing the checking and who's checking the credentials of the checkers. I, I um, was in Melbourne a few months ago, and I got in a cab um, that was an unusually pristine cab, and I started chatting to the driver, and uh, um, no surprises, he was actually the owner of the taxi plate, and he said he... Um, He's he's out of pocket twenty five to thirty k a year before he even, you know, can get on the road. So it's definitely not an even playing field with Uber X versus uh, a taxi driver in Australia. Well, that's in, in the Melbourne jurisdiction at least. Uh, they they thirty grand or so behind before they even get going. Yeah, well, that's that's another um, argument where I say that Uber is not in fact disruptive. They're just using a, an existing technology, the internet to undermine a system that has evolved in, you know, civilization over, we'll call it a hundred years to protect passengers as well as to ensure the fitness of the vehicles and the drivers. Now, at the same time, that all comes with a, you know, a significant expense to the drivers who participate in that system. And so the other side of that coin is Uber is putting guys who have, you know, in a lot of cases, they're, they're people who are immigrants who have gone through a lot to get the right to drive. And now for Uber to come along and say, well, too bad you did that because we can, we can, and we can license our drivers more cheaply. We can actually, they actually participate in, in assisting them to get financing for new vehicles in some cases. And exactly, that all undermines the employment incomes of people who are providing taxi service under the under the conventionally regulated system have you heard the rumors that uh, uber's turning over about 200 million a year i I don't think it's official but it's the the sort of rumblings that that's about the figure okay well i've heard lots of lots of different figures thrown about Uh, all of them are exactly that rumor as a private company there's no way to verify how much they're making there's no publicly filed documents at this point uh, so that's all rumor. However, it's my impression that given the number of legal actions underway against Uber in jurisdictions throughout the world, that I would have to think that the line item for legal defense for Uber has to be approaching close to $200 million a year itself. Yeah, and I would imagine that's one of the main reasons why they need to raise so much money is that there are going to be a lot of legal cases. And when there's deaths and injuries, that's which unfortunately probably will happen at some stage. And um, that, that's definitely where they're going to have to um, really dig into that war chest of funds to, to, to cover some of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, you know, if you think of all the regulated industries that exist in society. And if Uber is allowed to flaunt the rules in the taxi cab slash livery service, what's to stop people from offering everything from, you know, uh, private surgeries without licensing, without insurance, without indemnification to, you know, private aircraft services. I mean, it's the difference between uh, civilization and sort of anarchy is the fact that you have regulations that have evolved over time in these industries to protect both the public and the industry itself. So 
But you have to admit, James, I mean, the, the taxi industries around the world seem to be very much ripe for a shake-up and consumers are, are, are really responding to, to, the, to the some sort of shake-up that Uber is, in a way, forcing. I take your point about that we do need a level playing field, but the consumers are ready to actually have these taxi industries rise up and uh, evolve with the times. Yeah, sure. I, I don't deny that Uber is catalyzing or taking advantage of a situation that is very much ripe for, you know, change. The taxi, I mean, there's a lot of cities where you cannot get a taxi when it's, when it's busy. Um, however, you know, as a result of writing that article, I have been inundated with contacts from Uber drivers who are eager to share with me their essentially horror stories regarding the fact that, you know, during peak periods, uh, in fact, the, the most the most common instance of response I've had is re in regards to New Year's Eve, where people in Boston, Los Angeles, New York were expecting to take advantage of surge pricing. So they've, you know, they've, they've dedicated themselves to work on New Year's Eve, anticipating surge pricing, where when it's very busy, the price of a of a cab ride will increase by up to as much as ten times what it would normally be at non-peak periods, and the drivers participate in that upside. Without exception, every driver that contacted me suggested that they were available for surge pricing. They did not receive any fares that were priced according to this surge pricing. And so they were all uniformly disappointed. And, and you know, the general consensus was that they were going to stop working for Uber because it was not all it was cracked up to be. Well, before I chat to you a little bit about these valuation numbers, um I've sort of had a reflection just before I chatted to you about what is working for Uber. Why is, from my side as a as a as a uh, as a user of the service, I mean, there's two things that I've heard. The one is that um, something as simple as a a um, well not not a prepayment, but a, uh, your payment details are in the system and you don't have to fish around for money. That is for a lot of the people that I know that use Uber. That simple fact alone is actually quite an incentive to use the Uber platform to either call an Uber X or a taxi via the, the Uber platform. Um, my one friend said it, you know, it really does make it feel like it's a, it's a private driver working for me. The other aspect is I've spoken to a lot of Uber X drivers in Sydney. Now, Sydney is, is you know, quite a... Um, it's it's quite a wealthy city. There's there's um, you know people are, 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 are you know it's quite a stable economy and and a lot of these Uber X drivers in Sydney are actually semi-retired or retired people, and they have told me that they love it. They just it gives them something to do during the day. They make a little bit of money on the side. They can switch on and off. Um, a lot of them, in fact, the cars I've been in, and a lot of them are fantastic, these brand new Volvos and Mercedes, and they're clearly doing it almost just um, for a little bit of company and a little bit of fun. So Uber's providing a little bit of a, a lifestyle business for some of the Uber X drivers, in Sydney at least. I don't know about mm -hmm. other jurisdictions. So mm -hmm. um, that I think is quite, quite um, th those sort of prob problems in Sydney at least, they seem to be solving quite well. Yeah, the, the the Uber experience is definitely not uniformly horrible. Um, however, you know my the, my motivation in writing that article, uh, which was more or less a note to my clients uh, who are institutional investors, was that you know if the opportunity comes around to invest in Uber or an Uber dependent opportunity, you want to be thinking of the legal 
costs associated with Uber and the viability of Uber. I mean, there are that the entire country of Spain has uniformly banned Uber. China has essentially completely banned Uber. The city of Portland, Oregon has for now banned Uber. There are many cities and jurisdictions where they're you know, Uber has has had a run. They've you know they've, the city's evaluating and dealing with the experience, uh, but you know there are so many issues on the side of the conventional taxi system that okay, so Uber's come and Uber has demonstrated that there this industry needs a shakeup. Well, the industry is being shook up, and already in Toronto, at least, uh, conventional taxis now have apps where your payment details can be entered and. You pay with on the same sort of system as Uber. So, yes, the system is not uniformly horrible on the part of Uber, but is, in terms of its long-term viability, I just find that in the column of its liabilities relative to you know the aspects that it's disrupting uh, are not, in my view, sustainable in the long term. And the and the and the, the banning and the the outlawing of it in certain jurisdictions is a risk factor in terms of investment going forward that a lot of a lot of a lot of these cities even where uber is successfully being used are still at risk of legal action from existing uh taxi organizations uh drivers unions etc now um is it fair you know valuations private valuations is it fair to compare private valuations with valuations of listed companies, does it actually make sense? Or is it actually comparing apples with apples? So Uber's, you know, private valuation currently is on its li- last round of funding is forty billion, and Twitter's, for example, is twenty-five billion. Are, are we actually comparing the same thing there? Um, not at all. Not at all. No. If you know, they've they've extrapolated a, a valuation of uh, one point two billion, based or rather forty billion, based on the fact that the last. Funding the Series D round in June 6, 2014, was done at that 40, 41 billion dollar valuation. Actually, so that was you know that's a valuation that says well if you added up every share today and sold them all at the valuation paid for the Series D round, that puts the company at a 40 billion dollar valuation. But who is going to buy Uber today for 40 billion dollars? Absolutely nobody. There's no offers on the table. There's no rumors of discussions. That's a strictly a nominal number based on you know what the last investor paid. James, how about this for a hypothesis, right? Um, Google Ventures, which um, you know invested a ton of money in Uber, could it be um, uh, um, for them a, a play relating to their self-driving cars and or actually a data play right because uber's obviously getting tons and tons of data on on where people are going to times of days length of um you know trips etc would google want to you know perhaps um you know have an interest in some of that data and plugging into this network eventually of their or self-driving cars which are already um you know working in california yeah well um you know there are so many points of this exercise for Google, uh, you know, I don't know what portion of the $1.2 billion that was raised in the last round, I don't know what portion of that was provided by Google Ventures. Uh, however, for them, even if they provided the whole $1.2 billion, it's not, a, it's not actually a big number for Google. So I think their position in it is, 
they can't afford not to own this space if it actually moves ahead. Certainly there are opportunities existent within the Google empire for its self-driving cars, for the data plays, for the, the delivery service that is sort of implied by this system, and for all of the other spin-offs. Uh, for Google, I would think it's a way to rather economically sort of hedge their bets in the system and say, well, if, if Uber succeeds and is able to defeat all of the regulatory regimes that they're going to have to go through to make this a truly global successful service, uh, then absolutely we want to be uh, we want to be in a position to own the first in to the space, the first mover. So, you know, will you see Google in the in the IPO round? Well, that remains to be seen, and it remains to be seen who else will be in the IPO round. Uh, you know, as these legal situations unfold. The one aspect of Uber, I mean, I am an Uber user. I, I love UberX in Sydney. Cabs in Sydney are pretty expensive. Um, I mm -hmm. take a lot of cabs as well, um, but I do use Uber, UberX, sometimes cabs via the Uber platform. Um, on the absolute odd occasion, a, a, a black car if there's nothing else available. But what, as a, as a potential sort of investor, as a tech entrepreneur, what I see uh, one of the ri the risk um, of Uber is that the technology is not really very deep technology. I mean, it's it's not you know you can't compare an Uber platform to something like um, you know a Google or even a Facebook or Twitter in terms of the depth of the technology. It's a it's a relatively simple app. I mean, I understand there's always scaling issues and there's you know nuts and bolts, but it's to replicate only the platform if you forget about the brand and the network and things like that to replicate only the platform would be a relatively easy thing to do sure as is evidenced by the fact of their competitor lyft who you know provides more or less the same service with very slight variations are you um do you use uber at all uh i've used uber twice uh and but I, I prefer to support the conventional taxi system for the reasons uh, stated earlier. Uh, you know, I understand, you know, what, what is involved in licensing a taxi. I mean, much as I am, you know, very much annoyed and inconvenienced by the conventional taxi system in cities around the world, um, I, I just feel that it's something that has to be supported because I, I, I feel that overall, if we're allowing Uber to go forward on the basis that what just because it's an internet app, it doesn't have to play by the rules, now that's a really slippery slope in terms of its implications on a broader society as we evolve into a connected internet of everything age. And so for me, it's a more a matter of principle that I will not support Uber uh, just be, for those very reasons. And it it's not like I wouldn't take an Uber taxi if I suddenly found myself in a in a deluge at seven o'clock on a on a Tuesday night in New York, New York, needing to cross town. Um, I I absolutely would use it, but as a matter of principle, as a matter of first choice, I'm not going to use Uber, both because I don't believe in it as as a long term investment, so I'm I'm hesitant to support it, but also because I think that it's important we support the existing regime for a wide variety of good reasons, even though it does need a shakeup, but the way to go about it is not just to start something that ignores all the rules. Interesting. James, give us a quick um, um, overview of the, the Midas Letter Financial Group. Um, you mentioned that uh, you provide services and advice to institutional investors. 
institutional investors, high net worth retail family offices, and uh, individual retail investors. We have a news site at MidasLetter.com where we publish commentary and articles on, we focus on emerging companies. So this is why you know Uber is very much in our wheelhouse. We look at uh, emerging companies on a daily basis and uh, sort of perform due diligence services on them, generating reports and analysis for investors. Um, I'll, I'll put the links up on the show notes if, if anyone's interested. Uh, there are some interesting articles, and I'll, I'll have another browser around your site. James, James West, the CEO of Midas Letter Financial Group, really appreciate your time on, on the show. It'll be interesting to see how, how this Uber situation plays out. Um, I, I think this is uh, definitely not the end, but only the beginning of, of, of quite a dramatic story. Exactly. Yes, I agree. Thanks very much, Kevin. Thanks, James. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com for a free trial. Um, Charles, interesting article about Uber, obviously targeted at people that, uh, with big money that can potentially invest in, in Uber, no, not, not necessarily people like you and I, these institutions that, you know, Uber's raised a fortune of money, billions, uh, which is, you know, just an insane amount. And they now, you know, at the point where they, institutions are looking at investing in them. They're rumored to be turning over about $200 million dollars but that's, you know, their private company numbers aren't out. I mean, some, some valid points about, um, you know, Uber's risk. Absolutely. The, you know, the things that James mentions in terms of um, safety, insurance, those kind of things, um, I guess that's true. I, I can't really corroborate that myself. I mean, I've never driven with any of the Uber guys that have had any vehicles that haven't seemed in peak condition to me. Um, but and I'm not sure how liability works here in South Africa for the taxis and whatnot. So you know, I guess it's regional. Some of the things he he raises as concerns may be regional. Um, but I think you also raised a valid point where you know the the people that are using taxis are really crying out for something different, for some change. So if nothing else, Uber is definitely acting as a disruptor to try and improve things overall. Yeah, and. Um I mean, there, there's so many angles to this, you know. I mean, the one is the data play, which I touched on briefly, briefly with him. But, you know, I, I'm still, you know, Google have invested in Uber, obviously highly smart people there. Um, and, and they, you know, the data is very much the name of the game. You know, one of their catch lines is organizing all the information on the web. And, and you know, all these trips that are happening, you're getting fantastic data out of them. You wonder if they can somehow you know put that into google maps and um, and and even that alone if it might be worth something to them what do you think about the data play side of, of uber um actually i haven't thought about it much it's interesting in terms of the volumes of data they're gathering i'm just not too sure what google would be doing with it unless they're looking at some kind of automated you know robotic car thing to to plug all of this into in the future potentially so this might feed into um, the the robotic stuff that they're doing um, but beyond that, I'm not sh- quite sure what they would be doing with that information. Well, they, I mean, of course, Google have had their self-driving cars for quite a while. In San Francisco, in Nevada, it's legal. In San Francisco, sometimes you see a self-driving car, it's got a sign on it. So, yeah, you know, and if, if Uber can plug into the self-driving cars. But, 
you know, still, if you, as I mentioned in the podcast, if you go back to, uh, sorry, in the interview, if you go back to fundamentals and business fundamentals and, and this technology, this technology is, is, is not that deep. There's nothing like Google or, or even Facebook. Um, you know, to replicate this business is, is relatively easy in theory. I think the brand now has a huge value. You know, I think the brand itself is, is, you know, but, but to have a company only based on brand, especially a sort of tech slash quasi tech company based on brand, I don't know how sustainable that is. Um, but if they are, are turning over like mad and they are making money, that's, that says it all, and if they just beating, absolutely beating all their competitors. Well, if the if the brand is becoming a, a almost a verb essentially in in, in uh, you know popular <laughs> popular language, then it's already telling you something, you know. So if I go out, you know, between my friends and us, the the phrase would be, "Are we going to Uber it?" You know, so they're definitely making inroads in in the social in the social meme. Yeah, and, and again, you know, talking about the the bigger issue of tech startups and uh, starting tech startups. Uber's another interesting, you know, case study of where, where the, the brand and the energy and the intent and, and, and going, you know, the, the taxi apps, you know, there's a lot of them, you know, but, but Uber's, Uber's winning the game largely in part or, 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 you know, because it's managed to raise a lot of money, because it's been able to go global and the, the you know, the geographies feed off each other if you live in Sydney but you travel to San Francisco it's really cool that you can just use the same app and with the same payment information so again a lot of you know on the face of it I'm sure Uber would have been knocked back by many people because it's not deep technology because it doesn't seem compelling enough because of the legal issues that that are everywhere and they obviously this war chest one of the reasons why they raise so much money is they're going to have legal cases everywhere yeah I, I think you know the the convenience of it all is definitely a factor. But uh, being from where I'm from, you know, there's a certain security aspect to the whole app, which normal taxi applications don't give you. Like you can see a photo of who the person is, you know what the car registration number is, what the model and make of the car is. So when the person arrives, you know exactly who it is. So these are very important things for traveling where we come from, um, which you don't worry about too much. I think in most developed countries. <clears throat> you don't really have such a big problem with, uh, you know, high, or hijackings or, you know, armed robberies and stuff like that. So the security aspect from the Uber perspective is, is fantastic for us. And I think, you know, every geography, it's, and that's where, in a way, it mitigates its risk because every geography, there's a different sweet spot. So, you know, like you mentioned in South Africa, it's a security aspect. In Sydney, that's not really the, the big sell. The big sell more here is UberX and saving money because cabs are so expensive. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the compelling aspect in Sydney. In yep. San Francisco, the compelling aspect is cabs are just so thin on the ground, you know, that, that just to, to be able to get a ride when and, and where you like is very compelling. Um, in New York, I think it's sometimes when you want a cab, you can't get it, and, and some of them are really rough around the edges. I mean, the suspension in New York cabs, wow, it's just they're like race cars. They are so hard, those suspensions. Your, 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 your butt at the end of a ride in a New York cab has just been tenderized, you know. Um, I haven't used Uber in Sydney much, but I've driven a lot of taxis there. And, and uh, you know, if, if the Uber 
experience is similar in Sydney to what it is in South Africa. I'd much rather use Uber in Australia or in Sydney because some of those Sydney taxi drivers really scared the hell out of me. And I'm, I'm from a country where we drive a lot faster than what you do. So um, what is your take on that? I mean, has, how, how does the Sydney taxi drivers compare to the Sydney Uber drivers? You know, or I mean, don't, I mean, don't you want to comment? Are, are you, I mean, and do you take Uber X or the um, black cars I've, or which? I've used, okay, so I've used Uber X once um, and, and that was fine. Um, but I generally use the black cars, yes. Yeah, look, the, I mean, look, the black cars in, in Sydney are fantastic. I seldom use them. They, they're quite expensive. Um, I've only used them in one or two emergencies where I needed to get somewhere quickly and, and there was just nothing else. Or there's a large amount of people. Yeah, they, they absolutely, you know, certainly leaps and bounds ahead of taxi cab. But um, UberX, you know, is, is not that much different, I don't find, to a, to a taxi. It depends. I've had some nice cars and fantastic drivers. I've had some that are pretty middle of the road. I, I don't know. I find, I find in Sydney and Melbourne, maybe it's psychological, but I find over the last year they've actually upped their game. I don't know if that's just I've sensed they've upped their game or maybe they have because of what's going on. I find them generally to be a bit cleaner and a bit more engaging. Okay, um, that's good. Which like is I what said, if if nothing else, they're they're disrupting, you know, and creating a, overall a, a, you know a good change, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think the other aspect of Uber, where I think the very compelling aspect of Uber is on the driver side in Sydney. I don't know about South Africa, but in Sydney, so many of these semi-retired um, guys are, are Uber X drivers, and they just rave about how it gives them something to fill their day with they make a little bit of money on the side and they meet interesting people and they can switch it on and they can switch it off whenever they want boy are they glowing when they tell me about how how it's how they love that side of things absolutely i haven't spoken to one of the uber drivers that have been dissatisfied with them at all and well, uh, from what i gather uber x and the the black cars most of these guys are in the tourism um, industry down here in the Cape. So they're all essentially using Uber to augment that income of theirs where they would normally be riding tourists around and acting as a guide. They're now doing you know, the Uber thing in the evenings or whatever, especially towards the end of the year when, when things get a bit more crazy with New Year's parties and Christmas and whatnot. So you know, it's great for them to be able to augment their existing you know, very seasonal income with something that's a bit more stable. Yeah, look, and you know the, the internet's fantastic at um, making markets more efficient, and um, you know Uber's about that. Would you, if you were an institution, would you invest in Uber? Uh, I think institutions are very uh, tentative about their investments. Um, so I, I understand where um, you know James is coming from. So I don't. I think if I was running an institution, most probably not. I think your investment um, strategy is a lot more conservative. If you had a if you had a spare hundred thousand dollars under the under the mattress, would you invest in in um, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, or Uber? Which what would you what sp- would you split? What would your portfolio look like? Mm. I would um, I'd stick most of it. I think I'd do a let's see a thirty five percent in Apple, thirty five percent in in Google, and the rest I'd stick into Facebook. In Google. Yes. Right. I'd invest in Google. Okay. We haven't spoken much about Google. If you had to invest only in one share, which one would you invest in? I think at the moment, based on these earnings, Apple. 
Right. Okay. Interesting. And just as a disclaimer, we don't, we're not giving any financial advice. Please don't take Charles financial advice <laughs> and then come crying back to us. Um, we, we, we take it at your own peril. Yeah. We aren't financial advisors at all, but, um, I think if I had a spare hundred thousand um, dollars, I would, I think the one share, yeah, tough one. I, I would stay away from Apple just as, again, cause I don't understand the supply chain aspect of these business models and not understanding it makes me nervous it's i want to i want to understand the business so unfortunately i would just apple would be out i think uber uber would be out as a one share um i'd probably go either facebook or twitter um um, and if i could spread if i could spread them i'd probably yeah spread i'd spread across all i'd even sort of dip into the apple and uber and just sort of hope for the best um and uh, yeah, but uh, who who knows? Time will time will tell. Um, Absolutely. But we we well, don't got a lot of. Sorry, go. Sorry, go for it. No, you go. The Uber's Uber's got a lot of um, legal, you know, ground to traverse in the different territories and whatnot that they're in. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what happens. Are they still going to remain a global player? Will they become, you know, much more regional or limited to certain countries? Um, be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see in the, the legislation, you know, it'd be interesting to see how they deal with, the, each geography deals with the legislation. Um, I mean, there, there needs to be, you know, different levels of regulation. I was speaking, I think I mentioned uh, in the interview to a cab in, in Melbourne and his on-road costs are $30,000 uh, before he gets on the road every year. I mean, a level playing field, capitalism should always have a level playing field. You know, it shouldn't have one set of rules for a group of people and another set of rules for another group of people. That, that, that's not the right type of capitalism. It does need to be a level playing field. And that is the role of one of the roles of government is to keep on making sure that distortions and bumps on the playing field are leveled out and it's level for us all. Absolutely. But, you know, different countries, governments deal with things in different ways. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely see, we most probably would definitely see different policy decisions um, around Uber in the different countries. Definitely. So uh, anyway, Charles, I appreciate you joining us. Um, Thanks. It was a good time. And um, if you're listening to this podcast um, from, um, you know, let me rephrase that because you obviously are listening to this podcast. But if you'd like to contact us, it's um, podcast at itsamonkey.com. You can tweet us at monkeypodcast. We love to hear from you. and you, please subscribe on iTunes. If you go to itsamonkey.com and you click on the iTunes link or through your favorite podcast um, um, sort of service. I use Podcast Republic on Android. What do you use, Shah? Um, I am not a big podcast follower at the moment. I consume most of my uh, media via um, Twitter or um, there's another bunch called Prismatic. Yeah, no Prismatic. So I'm, not, really, cool. I'm not a big uh, podcast follower myself. Okay, so you just wait until someone tweets out something and if it happens to be a podcast, you'll listen to it. Yep, so it's all sort of, you know, in the moment. Very nice. Well, I, I use Podcast Republic. It's great. It's quite configurable. They release new, a lot of new versions. Um, and, um, and yeah, you can leave a comment on itsamonkey.com as well we, uh, about Uber, about Twitter, about Facebook, about if you're an Apple employee. Um, and so uh, stay in touch with us. Um, we do this podcast every two weeks at the moment. Um, I still keep saying to Chelsea, oh, I'd love to do it every week. Um, 
but I don't know, you know, we, we're building, we're building a tech company, then we've, we've got so much to do. It's even just a struggle, just, just getting this out. But we, we want to put this podcast together for you every two weeks. In fact, I'd love to do it every day, Charles, an hour every day. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, things move so fast. It's between podcasts, so much happens. Absolutely. I just don't know if I'd have much to say every day. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Yeah. It would definitely be a challenge. So maybe, uh, maybe we should pick a month or a week and try and do a, a, a you know, a five-day stint or a four-day stint and that, see that see would, how it goes. That would be interesting. Particularly if we could do it for charity or for sponsorship or something. We're going to do a, a five-day, a five-day run of it. You know, mm, sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can get um, since we talk about these companies so much. You know, <laughs> get them lined up to chat. Get them, get them lined up. If we can get. Uh, can get Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg or Evan Williams or Dick Costello or Marissa Mayer or someone. Nothing yeah. wrong with dreaming. <laughs> yeah, it all it all starts it all starts with the dream, right? Absolutely. It all starts with the dream. Anyway, um, I think that's enough of that. I don't think anyone's listening. I don't even think my own friends are listening by now when we've got into the whole self-indulgent waffle <laughs> that, that you and I will sort of degenerate into over the over, over the podcast. Um, it's been uh, Charles Mathieu, who's a, um, a developer with Managed Flutter, joining me um, from Cape Town, and myself, Kevin Garber, CEO and co-founder of Managed Flutter, um, joining from Sydney, Australia. We're going to catch you in two weeks with episode 55. This has been episode 54 of the podcast, and thanks for listening to us. <laughs>